I believe in Christ, he is my king. With all my heart to him I'll sing. I'll raise my voice in praise and joy, in grand amens my tongue employ. Scriptures reveal the divine desires of the Lord in our behalf. Each of us should have a burning desire to search the scriptures diligently and daily to seek the will of the Lord in our life. Brothers and sisters, on very thin pages, thick with meaning, are some almost hidden scriptures. Hence, we are urged to search, feast, and ponder. If you are lonely, please know you can find comfort. If you are discouraged, please know you can find hope. If you are poor in spirit, please know you can be strengthened. If you feel you are broken, please know you can be mended. Chapters 12 through 16 are interesting. The first few are, you know, it says compared to chapters in Matthew because essentially Christ is repeating a lot of what he taught to people in Israel. The Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer, all of that stuff is almost word for word um, what was being taught in Israel in the book of Matthew. And I think when I think, you know, why why would he be repeating all of this the same exact way, or or at least why is it presented that way? And I think it's just that consistency of the gospel, that Christ didn't have a separate gospel for the Jews than he did for the people in the Americas. It was the same teaching. And he knew that they would not have access to that for potentially a really, really long time. So to get them set up on the new law, right, and to understand that the old law had been fulfilled, he had to present this is what it actually means. You know, it's not eye for an eye anymore. It's not, it's more about um, being considerate and being thoughtful and treating others as you would be treated and not judging and, and all of that. And this is not something that the prophets haven't been teaching. Prophets have been teaching this stuff, but they've always been teaching it in the context of when Christ comes, this will all be super, super important to know, you know? Yeah. And now that he's here, it's like, now this is real deal. Yeah, I, I, was, I was curious what the word beatitudes mean, because I always thought it meant beautiful attitudes. <laughs> yeah. Like, we should have these kind of attitudes that are beautiful. Yeah. But then when I looked on the internet, it talked about how it's, um, it comes from the Latin word beatus, meaning happy and blessed, and that it's the beatitude is supposed to be blessed happiness or blessings. It also, or, or, or a group of blessings. There's another one that says supreme blessedness, exalted happiness. Um, and then I started looking at it that way. What if, what if these are blessings? Because that's, you know, it says that, blessed are the meek, blessed are these. Um, it was just, I don't know. I, I thought it was interesting because um, I think that's something we've used to describe them, even in the Bible. Like we've added, like we as humans have added that meaning to the Sermon on the Mount, and the Beatitudes. I, I also think it's interesting, you know, in verse 1, he, he sets apart the 12 disciples. Yeah. I don't think we call them apostles. And then uh, he says, um, 
when he when he blesses them, he says, Behold, he stretched forth his hand unto the multitude, and Christ saying, Blessed are ye if ye shall give heed unto the words of these twelve, whom I have chosen from among you to minister unto you, and to be your servants. And unto them have I given power that they may baptize you with water, and after ye are baptized with water, behold, I will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Therefore, blessed are ye if ye shall believe in me and be baptized, and after that ye shall you have seen me, and I know that I am. And I really like that if we think about one of their charges was to minister, you know. And that's also something that's been asked of all of us. And right after he says, I've chosen among you to minister. I've chosen them among you to minister unto you and to be your servants. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's an interesting thought to have when we are to minister to others. Maybe one of the main ways to do that is to be their servant, to serve them. To and and then I thought about what does a servant do? I mean, a servant. I think a good servant has pride in their work. You know, they're happy to help. They're attentive. They, you know, like if if you if I were to like open a restaurant. And I want the best experience for my customers. I want them have the. I would say I would want my service staff to just be attentive, to try to like anticipate needs, but not be overbearing. Don't go bug the people, but you have to be just right. You have to be precise. Enough attention and service, but also don't crowd them. Don't make them feel as if because too much you tend to make people feel as if they're incompetent or you know better or right. I'm here to serve you. You apparently. You apparently don't know anything about cheeseburgers. You know? <laughs> like, no, a, a person who's there to serve is totally happy with what you decide. Let me just help you in whatever you decide, whatever you want to do. And and um, and that's kind of a little bit different because I think when I approach ministering assignments or helping people, I tend to want to help people the way I've already predetermined I want to help them. Yeah. Not so much the way that maybe they want to be helped. You always feel like you're there to help someone when they're at a deficiency. And then we tend to judge they're in that situation because they made bad decisions. or And so I'm here to be your minister to you and save you. But I think sometimes that comes across as I want you to do, to accept my service in the way that I want you to. Well, no one, no one likes to be a project. Right. No one likes to feel like, oh, they're they're I'm their project. There's a guy. A friend of mine who was very active in the church and kind of distanced distanced himself from the church and uh, but still would attend on occasion. And he was really just trying to find a testimony of what was truth. And. My approach to him was always, hey, I'll share my testimony with you. And I would love to, you know, have whatever conversations you want to have. Um, but it's not really, I'm not going to try and convince you of anything or, or make you believe something. This is all your decision. You have your agency to choose what you want to do. But if you ask me, you will get what I believe. And other people that were trying to help him, I feel like they, they took him more as a project. Like, I've got to, I've got to convince him. We've got to work with him because he'll come around, you know, and that was such a deterrent for him. He wanted nothing to do with that. He felt it that he, he was, a, he's familiar with 
how we act and think a lot of times in the church and was like, I don't want to be someone's project. I want, this is my spiritual journey that I'm on and I need to have time and space to figure that out on my own. And sometimes ministering is just saying, what do you need? Not telling you, here's what you need. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a very different approach by going and saying, what help do you need? What, what guidance do you need? What assistance do you need? Rather than let me come and help you let me come and give you what you need. It's two very different things. I think I think one of the main needs that we need to fulfill as disciples of Christ, as ministers, as however you want to call it, is we need to help people feel loved and liked and that they matter. And that seems so simple, but it's not. It's much harder because you you have to be in the right mindset. You have to have the correct intentions. You have to be in the right um, frame of mind and with the with true honest desires for people to really feel that. And then I think that creates the background and that creates the environment for the Holy Ghost to tell that person what they need. You know, that's his job is to tell them what they need. Yeah. Not ours. You know, <laughs> we're there to help prepare the environment and to. And to maybe even help them take their guard down, maybe even help them feel, you know, I was, I'm kind of surprised that I'm actually enjoying talking to you or, or, you know, and then, and then the Holy Ghost knows exactly when, when the right setting and how to use the correct feelings and memories and experiences that are individual to that person for them to actually hear the Savior's invitations. And we can't duplicate that. You'll notice every time the prophets are talking to the people throughout the entire Book of Mormon, they're always saying things like, here's what you need to do. And when you do this, the spirit will work within you. It's never, here's what you need to do, and then come to me for the next clue. And then I will walk you through this. No, it's, I'm telling you, all you have to do is be obedient to these commandments, and then the spirit will be present. The spirit will work within you. And that's exactly what we're, we're always being taught. Like you said, um, no matter how spiritually enlightened we feel we might be, there's no way we can know more than God of what someone else needs. And we might actually be doing them a disservice by saying, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need. No, just just be there. Be supportive. Be available as an instrument in the hands of the Spirit, but allow the Spirit to work, Right. Don't don't assume that you know better because we're all we're all kind of trying to figure this out as we go. I think it's interesting that these twelve that were called as servants and they're not apostles because there already were twelve apostles that he left in in Jerusalem, and it's good foresight because even though this is at a time when there was no contact between continents. And he very well could have called a 12 apostles here and a 12 apostles there and a 12 apostles in China and a 12 apostles in Australia and wherever, you know, to make sure that everyone's covered and they have what they need. Eventually, you would have had a problem. Because eventually, uh, we would have had maybe cultures coming together and then it's like, well, which 12 apostles do you follow, right? <laughs> Instead, he calls disciples to serve a lot in the many ways the same functions as the apostles. And then I think about the modern apostles. They are also called to minister unto us and to be our servants. 
And in what way are the modern apostles our servants? I thought about that for quite a while because I was like, it seems like there's this idea that they're they're somehow better than us or above us. And I don't think that any of them would say, yeah, I'm above you. I'm better than you. I don't think any of them would say that. I think the way they see it as we are dedicated, we have been able to dedicate our lives to the growth and development of the church so that you can focus on providing for your family. If it were up to all of us to do the work of the apostles, uh, we probably wouldn't do a good job because we don't have the time to dedicate to it. Well, we wouldn't be able to dedicate the, the time necessary to to receive the revelation. And then if someone received one revelation and someone received something else, then there'd be confusion. It's very wise that the, the, the Lord has designated specific individuals to just focus on that, the growth and development of the church and, and receive revelation for the rest of us to follow. Well, one of the main things that they that they do is well, they're not only organized after the manner that the Lord wants them through through the priesthood and to having keys and having uh, authority in uh, specific callings and, and responsibilities, but they're also in charge of keeping the doctrine pure. Uh, and I see that almost as always recentering us, like bringing us back to center, bringing us, make sure we keep the doctrine in the ordinance, and then making sure that the ordinances are, are, you know, followed that the correct that, that we follow the spirit and the letter of the law, you know, and to be judges when disputations arise. And we know there's been tons in the Book of Mormon so far disputations yeah. about certain points of doctrine. And we'll see that there'll be more later on. Moroni brings quite a few other ones into into our knowledge. But even if we look at this dispensation, since the church was restored, it didn't take long until there were disputations about this, about Zion's camp, about baptisms, about baptisms for the dead. And as they received more knowledge from heaven, uh, you could see uh, those that interpreted it the way they could, those that did this, and those that follow the brethren. And from there have sprouted even different religions or mm -hmm. different branches from our religion uh, that have felt, oh, no, it has to be this way. And I think that's a very big burden because for them, I think if they don't declare the truth, if they don't exhort us continuously, if they don't get up in general conference and really bring in their best to kind of pour their heart out in their message, I think they're held at a higher standard in the in the blood of this generation or these people. You know, so many times that we hear Nephi and Jacob saying, "Hey, I shake my garments before you." You know, I I have washed my hands clean because I have you know kind of because I don't or or Jacob when he says so that I don't come under coming. I have to tell you the consequences of sin. You know, and I. And it's and not I, easy for me to do, and I know it's not easy to hear, but we have to have these conversations, you know. <laughs> well, and I also think I was listening to Elder, one of the apostles in, in the meeting, kind of talk he gave, uh, Elder Suarez, and he kind of said, he was talking about when he was newly called, which he, he's fairly new compared to the other ones. He said, this wasn't my plan. He was going to retire and thought he was going to have, you know, be able to retire. But when he got the call, he realized, oh, I'm going to die doing this, <laughs> you know. 
and for for a second there i thought man it wasn't his plan you know and in some ways you can see how their servants were they're saying whatever they had planned for their life and how it was going to turn out they immediately left their nets and follow the lord and we see that with president nelson many times that people ask them how could you leave your practice you were this well-renowned you were and then over and almost all the brethren have a similar story you were at the top of your field you had so much promise your future looked full of what the world perceived as being success and, and grandeur and accolades and things right and then straight away they left their nets and follow the lord so then they could help us so they could give us guidance so they can answer and and there are times when you know we get carried away and we need correction and that's not fun uh we like to think that's fun but i don't know if any of you have ever had a employee or a child or someone and you have to be the one to come bearing the bad news no you cannot continue down this path and i have to tell you because as much fun as you think you're having, I'm not here to spoil that, but like you, you give it enough time, you're going to end up in a bad place where you don't want to be. Especially right now when we're, we're so interested in just providing support for people. You know, people want to hear, I, I've got your back. And in many ways, that's fine. But sometimes, especially when it's someone you care about a lot, you have to step in and you say, listen, I have your back, but just so you know, if you continue down this road, it's not going to be good. And it's oftentimes perceived as, well, you don't support me. You don't love me then, you know, because you're not willing to just say unconditionally, you're going to, you're not giving me your support. And it's like, well, yeah, I, I do love you. And that's why I'm telling you that if you continue down this, it's not going to be good. Um, a lot of times I think that's perceived as, you don't support me. You don't care about me. You're you're just trying to, you have ulterior motives or whatever it might be. But I think that every time the Lord has come and said, this this needs to stop, that needs to stop, it's it's definitely out of, out of love. And as long as we're doing it in a way that is obvious, that we're not, we don't have ulterior motives, I think people will understand with time. Maybe not immediately, but with time. Yeah. I mean, the other part, of the the beatitudes here i wonder if it's meant for us to hear it as you're gonna feel all these emotions you know as you're as you're striving especially you've been baptized you've been visited by the holy ghost you're now on the covenant path you know as, as we would say nowadays or you're you're on the path of discipleship you're gonna feel poor in spirit you're gonna mourn you know you're gonna you're gonna um hunger and thirst after righteousness you know you're gonna and, and so all these things are blessings to say as as you're poor in spirit you're you're gonna be okay you know as you are as you're mourning you will be comforted you know uh as you thirst after righteousness you will be filled with knowledge you know and and i i don't know i i've i have i've been thinking a lot more lately of what the scriptures forewarn us on how we will feel through through our lifetimes, through our, our, our life here here on earth, and how we should hope for for things and how the Savior is aware. If he's aware that um, you know we're gonna be persecuted 
for his name's sake. That's okay. That doesn't diminish the message. That doesn't nullify it. It was never going to be easy. It was never you. It was never going to be because it's true. No one will ever give you a hard time for it. Yeah, that that and if you want to have mercy, remember that you also need to be merciful. If you want to have peace around you, you need to be a peacemaker. You know, <laughs> um, that it's not just a lot of things happening to you. Also, it's a lot of where where do you stand? Are you contributing? to other people's good experiences here on earth or are you just being a consumer of experiences you know what kind of experiences are you creating for those around you are you merciful when someone makes a mistake or when someone does something that harms you are you merciful towards them or are you ready to take out vengeance because he you know goes on to explain later uh, judge not that ye not be judged right be merciful with others so that you can also benefit from mercy for your own shortcomings. Be a peacemaker. Uh, he talked about it earlier in the scriptures uh, a couple chapters ago that that people that cause contention, right, are not of his gospel. This is not my doctrine. So be a peacemaker. Find a way to, in those difficult situations, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, to just make everything good no matter what sometimes you do have to say no we need to resolve this and we have to see this conflict through but being a peacemaker is not a passive thing it's a very active procedure right like uh, when we're told that patience is not a passive attribute either yeah that uh, you know i i think it's interesting how he, he kind of, in verse 17, he says, Think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And then he goes to explain, I, I think he's trying to explain to us that his, his gospel, one, he's the one that gave the law to begin with. You know? And we will be tempted often to dismiss new new information or new revelation because we're hanging on to our previous way of doing things and and like it was good for them to follow the law of moses it wasn't a bad thing but now he's asking us to let it go and here's a new way of thinking about it before it was hey eye for an eye if your brother offend you okay you know if he if he if he's you know kind of eye for an eye and now he goes all the way to saying 22, but I say unto that, whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of judgment. Whosoever shall say unto his brother Raka shall be in danger of the counseling. Whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if he shall come unto me or shall desire to come unto me and remembers that thy brother has aught against thee, go thy way unto thy brother and first be reconciled with thy brother and then come unto me with full purpose of heart and I will receive you. And so he's saying, you need to view this new new gospel law as something that's more than just actions you have to consider and measure your the intention of your hearts and if if you want to come unto me which is a good thing but you have contention with your neighbor with your brother with your family resolve that first 
so you can better enjoy this. You know, it's almost like, I don't know, it's, it's hard to explain, but he's trying to tell us, because I think we see the same symptom in our day. I see it in our day. Our, our prophets, they've, they, you know, they tell us continuously, the restoration is not done. It's a continuous process. And then they, they give us more revelation. They say, now we're going to do this. We're going to allow this. We're going to change the block. We're going to change the study cycle. We're going to change uh, the youth temple uh, requirements or what they're allowed to do. You know, we're going to, and, and we continuously, we're hanging on to the old and not letting go at times and having a difficult time and not accepting the new. Yeah, I think that we're staring that in the face right now with this global pandemic that we're looking at it like someday we'll get back to normal. Um, I can't wait till things are normal again. And it's like, well, maybe, maybe some of these changes are permanent. Maybe some of the ways that we're doing things, uh, we will never go back 100% to, to what we consider to be normal. And maybe some of these changes were necessary for the future. So, yeah, I think... <laughs> Um, when you're when you're holding on to the way old things were, it's not just the old law, right? It's sometimes when we look at the way the church has been changing in the last two three years, um, policy wise, and also um, some of the the ways that we've carried out just our regular meetings. If we if we get hung up on we need to go back to the way things were, we really are cheating ourselves out of potential progress in the present. Instead of focusing on getting back to how things were, we ought to also look at, well, what will things look like in the future, you know, and be willing to make those changes. How do we how do we still fulfill our callings? How do we still fulfill our commitments and our covenants with God if maybe our attendance in church and in the temple is different? Don't kick back against that, you know. Maybe we ought to think outside the box a little bit. I like in verse um, 29, where the Lord is very direct. It says, Behold, I give you a commandment that you should suffer none of these things to enter into your heart. And I was curious, like, what is he? Is he talking about verse 28, where it's this lust uh, for, for, for committing adultery? Is he talking about in verse 23, where it's, 23 and 24 where you have uh, 22 where you have uh, anger with thy brother or is he talking about all of it where he's saying don't let enter into your heart what is contrary to what you know you should have in there you know, don't entertain sinful thoughts or feelings because if you do that then it will go from that it will eventually go from that into actions. Um, I don't know. It just kind of felt interesting that that really, when I when I heard that part, I thought he's being very specific. I give you a commandment: you shall suffer none of these things to enter into your heart. For it is better that you should deny yourself of these things, therein you should, you'll take your cross, that you shall be cast into hell. The other part that I thought was interesting was in chapter thirteen, the Lord's Prayer. Yeah, I always viewed it as you know because I heard it a lot growing up from my grandma and aunts and uncles. They were pretty hardcore Catholics, and I always kind of dismissed it as like this Catholic thing. Like, <laughs> but 
it's important enough. I what I like about all these chapters where Christ is here in the Americas is that things that he, we definitely know he's told twice. He at least told the people in Jerusalem, and he told the people here in the Americas. It must be important. Yeah, you know, it must be important. And and uh, I don't know. I, I thought that was interesting. Well, it's kind of like if you have a very finite amount of time. I mean, Christ had, what, a three and a half year, three year ministry, whatever it was. But some of that was truncated by just normal everyday life. Some of it was the Pharisees kind of taking up his time in, in teaching maybe things he wanted to teach. Some of it's not recorded the way it maybe should be, should have been. Um, but then he comes to the Nephites and he's like, OK, I've got a few days here. What are the most important things that I need to leave? What do they need to hear from my mouth that I need to give them in, in this short period of time that I'm here? What's the foundation? Well, the Beatitudes, okay. And then next thing, prayer, right? What's prayer like and how do we do it and why? What are the types of things that we can ask for? What are the types of things that we can talk to our Heavenly Father about? And I think it's really cool because the Lord's Prayer I've I've kind of felt the same way, um, not so much my family, but when I lived in the South, uh, the Lord's Prayer is said before, we said it before rec basketball games as a team. Like the team would get together and we put our hands in the huddle and we'd say the Lord's Prayer. And I was like the only Mormon kid there, you know, sorry, only member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And That's right. everybody else is Baptists and Methodists and Lutherans and whatever. And so they all knew it by heart. <laughs> And I didn't. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, uh, trying to remember it as I go, because it was something that was said a lot. And for me, it was kind of like, oh, that's a Baptist thing. Yeah. I pray saying whatever I want to say. If they asked me to say it, I would just say, hey, help us have a good game and to not get hurt and have fun and whatever. I, that's how I would pray. And when they pray, they must, this is must, must be what they do. But at the same time, I, you look at it and why is it so important? that he say this twice to two different groups of people because he first honors the father then he asks for forgiveness then he asks for protection then he honors the father again right and i think it's a very short and succinct way of saying this is this is the a good foundational prayer right make sure that you give thanks make sure that you ask for the things you need and always giving glory to the Father. Well, in in verse five, he he begins there with, "And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites." Yeah. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the street, that they may be seen of men. Rarely I say unto you, they have the reward. And so initially, he says, you know, he's telling us, prayer is not for your vain ambition, you know? It's not for the recognition of others. And then um, and then he gives us an example, enter into thy closet and shut thy door and pray to your father who's in secret and thy father who's in secret shall reward thee openly, you know? And then he says, and when you pray, you're not being repetition. So right off the bat, you know, he's also telling us this prayer that I'm gonna give you as an example is not the prayer to become the repetitive prayer because I'm about to tell you, don't use, Vain repetition, you know. Right. Um, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking, and then I think 
verse eight is one of my favorite verses. Uh, be ye therefore like not be be not ye therefore like unto them, for your father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. And and that's what I think that that really I really like that because sometimes we think we have to be either all fancy, we have to like we're speaking, you know, you know, we're pleading our case before the King of England, you know, <laughs> or or we have to be secluded or secretive like should i tell him yes he knows he knows <laughs> you're not surprising him he knows your actions he knows the intention of your heart he knows what you've done wrong the best thing for you to do is to be honest to be honest and then when you're honest about how you really feel even when you feel that that's not important enough to bring up in a prayer to your heavenly father it is because he's more concerned that you're honest and you're being genuine. He's not, he doesn't want all the fancy tasseled gold glitter language words. He wants you to plead from your heart and say what, how you really feel. And only then I think you can really invite the spirit to enlighten your mind, to receive answers to prayers, and you will see that your prayers change. You know, there's many times when I pray and it's just, here's how I feel. I feel like this, I'm a little bit stressed out. I'm worried about this on my job, you know, and you get going. And then before long, you feel that things are changing and, you're, and nothing around you has changed. You're still on your knees with your eyes closed, but you can feel everything is changing around you. And most of that is your attitude, your perspective. And you have impressions, ideas, even most of the time is people talk about a cathartic experience. That's what prayer is supposed to be. It's supposed to be just almost like a therapeutic experience. And then you can reassess the situation. I think sometimes though we get caught up in expecting that to happen immediately. That I'm going to say a prayer and I'm going to immediately receive forgiveness or immediately receive revelation or immediately receive exactly what I'm looking for, or even just peace. And sometimes you don't. Sometimes you pray and you finish and it's kind of like, okay, did was anybody even listening? Sometimes that happens. And that's okay. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you should stop or that you should, you know, drastically change how you pray. Um, it may be that you need to analyze what it is you're asking for. Um, am I asking for the right things? Is this really, am I, am I being, are my desires righteous or am I asking for stuff that is totally not needed? And this is the way, the Lord's way of telling me and be persistent. You know, that's why we're told to pray often. It's not just something you do to, to check a box, pray often, look for answers in your everyday life. After you pray, you may not, you may sit there and you may immediately receive revelation. Other times you may feel like, okay, I, I guess it's out there now. Um, I've made a formal request and I'm going to see what happens. And maybe two weeks later, you're having a conversation with someone and they say something that sparks that inspiration in you. This yeah. could be an answer. Well, we, we need to also think about, we should ponder and pray. Yeah. And the pondering most of the time is preparation to pray. And that's okay. You know, I, I love reading in the Joseph Smith history when 
when he says he pondered the words of the scripture, if any of you lack wisdom, he pondered that for days. Yeah. And then he, even before that, he went and asked his local reverend, he asked his brother, he asked his mom, he asked his dad, what do you think about this? What do you think? And there was, he, it was a preparation. And I think, and I, like for me, in my mind, this is a weird analogy, but get ready for this. I look at my emotions, like these highways that are running through my mind. And at the intersection of where I am 100% honest with myself, and I am, and the when when that intersection hits the crossroad of, I am wanting to change. I I'm willing to do whatever it takes. At that corner is where I find the savior waiting for me, hmm. you know. And I have to work through all these avenues to get to that intersection, where I am completely honest, and I'm not trying to hide anything, and I am of a disposition where I'm ready to change. And I find that most of the time I have to actively ponder and think about things and compare to this plan and do the best of my knowledge to study things out and then take it to the Lord. I don't know. I, I just, it, it works. I mean, it, but like you said, the answer to your prayer sometimes come as you're driving, <laughs> you know, and you weren't praying and then there it comes. But because you're praying, you almost always have a prayer in your heart. You're thinking about things and, and, and you have the scriptures in your mind and, and you have the commitments in your schedule that you like to go over. When do I do this? When do I do that? And all of that is a good thing. All those things work together for you to have the Lord continuously in your mind and in your heart and the gospel, something you think about. That's what that means to me, though. Like when it says to have a prayer in your heart and you be praying all the time. Like, if you think about praying constantly, that is a bit unrealistic because we have normal everyday lives we have to live as well. But when you think of it in terms of don't let the only time you think about Heavenly Father and don't let the only time that you think about your spiritual well-being be while you're praying. Be thinking about that on a regular basis. I've found that the times when I've kept those those thoughts fresh like i have a need either spiritual temporal whatever it may be and i pray for help from my heavenly father and then i just can't kind of keep that those thoughts fresh as i go i find that inspiration comes a lot easier than when it's like okay i've said that i'm done with that moving on if you leave it to one side then there might be prompting and inspiration coming that you're just totally glazed over and you don't you don't pick them up because you're not listening anymore you know keep your ears open keep listening and i think that's part of the prayer is that you're trying to maintain some sort of connection still you know in verse uh, in chapter 13 uh, verse 25 where he speaks to the 12 and he says um, for i have chosen you to minister unto this people therefore i say unto you take no thought of your life what you shall eat, what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on, if not the life more than the meat and the body more than raiment. And then in 26, he talks about the fowls of the air. They don't sow, neither do they reap, and gather into barns, yet your Father in heaven feedeth them. How much more are you than them? And then 27, that's the one that really hits me, maybe because uh, I wish I could add a cubit to my statue. <laughs> 
But it says, which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? And I thought about this a lot because in one hand, he's telling them, don't worry about what to us seem to be like the basic necessities of life. Like, what should I eat? What should I do? And then, but then he's also kind of saying in verse 27, if you worry about something that you cannot control, it doesn't make it reality. If you worry so much about adding a foot, if you spend all your time worrying about just becoming taller, it's not going to happen, right? And and so I, my thought was, well, why? What what is all this about? Like what what? And for me, because we're we're taught to be industrious, we're taught to provide for our family. You know what does it mean? I think it means do the best you can and trust the Lord, and don't fixate on things that aren't in your periphery that are in your periphery and that are not part of your your mission like there you're to minister and go teach the people and as you do that your needs will be met and and um and i think about like why is that there because i mean is it is was this only written for the 12 disciples was this written for any disciple of christ was this written for us? What can we learn from this? Because I, I often think the world does a lot to try to get us to worry about the one cubit. The the and it, it could be manifested in different ways. It could be you can worry about that. You can worry about that. what if an asteroid does really come closer than that other asteroid? What if Yellowstone erupts? And you can worry about these things, but it's like at the expense of the moment. And the moment is you should be ministering to others. You should be helping. Not only that, but your stature, you know, we can we can go about whether that's a figurative stature or literal stature, but just by wishing to be taller, you can't be taller. Or just by worrying about shortness, you can't be taller. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of things in this life that we just don't have any control over. There's a few things we can influence. There's a lot of things that we may, our behaviors and our actions and our habits and our obedience, you know, we can, we can definitely take control of our lives. There's a lot of things though. Like, let's say I think I have, let's say I have COVID, right? And I go get tested and they say it's going to be three days until we have results, which is unfortunately fairly common. What should I be worrying constantly for those three days about whether I'm sick or not, about whether I have it or not? Does it do me any good to sit in my house and just be, oh my gosh, am I, do I have COVID? Do I have it? You know, probably not. Now, I should probably take precautions just in case I do to not spread it. But is it, gonna, is it going to solve anything to be constantly concerned about that? I either do or I don't. And at that point, I have zero control over that. All I can do is pray and say, help me to get better. Help me to not pass it to people who will suffer more than me. I don't know. There's just a lot of things in our lives, I think, that we have, we do have control over. And the things that we don't, he's basically saying, just by worrying about things isn't going to solve them. Just by being consumed in your concern is not going to solve them. There are other things that you need to be worried about. And in this context, he's obviously telling them, don't worry about these basic needs. Consider the lilies of the field. 
how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. The Lord takes care of his own. The Lord takes care of us. No, but, but you know, in 33 he says, in 32, for your Father in heaven knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I think one of the temptations for our agency has always been to try to control what we shouldn't, meaning go out there and become a, a moat of our neighbor's eye remover company <laughs> when our beams continue to block our vision, right? And, and it's very easy. I mean, you, you listen to uh, an improvement or a talk or anything, and it's far easier for you to think of, oh, I wish so-and-so would hear this. I wish so-and-so. Then for us to say, what in the world do am I going to do about this? How am I going to be sure that I'm I'm aligned or I'm 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 doing what is right? And, and that's the thing, you know. Sometimes you can get, you can also become what we call the analysis paralysis, where and that you know in in kind of the the work environment, sometimes you can analyze a decision so long that you you are you're trying to be either create a really good process or or streamline things so they work really well but you've taken so long just and and analyzing and you're waiting for the data to tell you enough so you can move uh where you're 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 not acting and you're stuck in paralysis and it's like nephi kind of went and did he didn't say, I'm going to wait and stew, or I'm going to wait and see, I'm going to wait and analyze. No, we'll go and do. And the first one taught us something and led us to our next idea. And that next idea was, well, maybe we can get some treasure. Maybe he wants that. And then that one taught us something. So eventually they got it right. And I just feel it's so important that we use our agency, that we do things, that we are tactile in our in our life, that we... Well, and that we don't expect it to be handed to us, right? Part of this whole test and this whole life experience is learning how to work through some of our problems. Staying staying active in finding solutions and not just expecting, hey, I, I read my scriptures, so now you owe me a blessing, right? Because <laughs> that's that's not how that works. He will be much more able to bless you and willing to bless you if you say, okay, I read my scriptures. Now I'm going to go out and do all the other things I have to do. And I said my prayers, and I'm going to go out and do all the other things that I need to do. And he'll see that you're not just complacent. You're not just saying, okay, it, it almost is like a law of Moses type way of viewing things. Obedience, eye for an eye, obedience equals a blessing. The Jesus Christ gospel not the law of Moses, but the new law, the higher law, would be just continue doing good. Keep going. Don't stop. Follow a commandment and don't wait around for a blessing. Just keep going. And the blessings will come. You will notice it. You'll see it happening. And then acknowledge it and give gratitude. And then keep going, right? Don't, don't ever have this moment where you're like, you owe me. You know, That's not how that works. I do think... Um... I was, you know, in, the, in chapter 14, 
you know, the, we have the famous verse three, you know, the, the beam and the mote, the mote in thy brother's eye and the beam in your, and in verse five, thou hypocrite. So, so far we've heard the word hypocrite several times yeah. in, in the last few verses. It seems that the Lord does not want us to be hypocrites. And <laughs> um, being a good disciple, and, and uh, we're reading these, these instructions, right? And having this word continuously be brought up, then it should indicate to us that it's something we really need to watch out for continuously. What causes us to be a hypocrite? And it, it almost, especially in this example with the beam and the moat, it's one, we have good intentions, right? Let me tell you how you can be better, Daniel, right? Mm-hmm. Or or it's mask with good intention. Or maybe we can argue it's not really good intentions, you're being selfish. You know, but it appears or or people will defend it as a I'm just I'm being a good neighbor. I'm gonna go tell them what's wrong with them, right? I'm gonna go point out their flaws. That way, if they want to get to heaven, they're gonna have to fix that, right? Right. You know. So I think it's whenever we twist the 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 spirit of the law for our own gratification, aggrandizement, or pride, we are being hypocrites. You know, when, when we use the gospel to um, justify ourselves, to gratify our pride, to hide our vain ambitions, you know, we're being hypocrites. So we're being told that Christ has given us these principles to live by as disciples and attributes to cultivate. But when we misuse them for our own pride and to feel more important or feel better, we start putting ourselves above others or above even God himself. You know, we, we think we, we're being hypocrites. I don't know. I, I just think that's something to that I need to watch out for. I think we all need to watch out. But the fact that he calls it out several times, he must not like that attribute in his followers. Not only that, but, you know, in verse 4, it says, let me pull the moat out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. It's just as bad in my mind, even if you don't try to pull the moat out of someone else's eye, if you're just fixating on the moat, and you can't see past the moat in their eye to see the good things that person does. You know what I mean? Yeah. That you start to fixate. You're not. You're like, well, I'm not going and interfering with their life. I'm not going telling them what to do and how to live their life. But at the same time, that's all you can see is what they need to change and what they need to fix and what you perceive to be what's wrong with them. <laughs> I know for a fact I'm super guilty of that. You just like, described... Every comment section of any news article or post ever created. It's people opinionating. Oh, they should have done this. They should have done this. Oh, this should have happened. Why didn't they do, you know, how could you not know? And you know, It's all of this, yeah. you know. We're addicted to telling other people how they could have used their agency better. While we ourselves, our house is burning down. Our marriage is falling apart. Our kids aren't listening to us. Or we have addictions or we're trying to hide our sins. And it's that hypocrisy. 
I think that is offensive to the Lord. That we're quick. We're so quick. I got to comment. I got to say. I got to say what you should have done better. Yeah. How you're wrong. I, and not, and get, and you become addicted to this becoming the, you know, the Wasatch Front <laughs> moat removing company. <laughs> and then you don't realize you got a backyard full of beams. And how can you, how can you, how can you have the audacity to go? Well, even pointing out moats can become your beam. When you do that so frequently that that's who you become, just a judgmental person that's constantly pointing out flaws in everything and everyone. You know, earlier we were talking about a good news article that came out. It was good news, generally positive, and people were still finding ways to say, oh, it was the new airport. That's what it was. The new Salt Lake City Airport, brand spanking new terminal, everything looks amazing. And the first comment on the list was, I'm glad I don't have to dust that place. I'm glad I don't have to clean that. <laughs> I was like, what? It's this generally fairly good news thing and very politically inoffensive. And yet people were still finding a way to make it somehow seem like a negative. And when you do that so easily, that becomes your, your beam. That becomes who you are. And I think the Lord is saying, not only do you need to focus on your own weaknesses and leave people alone to focus on their own weaknesses, but also it's not enough to just not interfere. It's you need to look past it. If someone's got a mote in their eye, you know, what else do they have? What else do they bring to the table? They're probably genuinely good people. But if you're only fixating on that moat, you're missing out on a lot. Well, we're told you know, before that our attitude towards our our um, neighbor's moats should be in, in chapter 13, verse 15. But if you forgive not, uh, 14, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. That's pretty straightforward. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if I'm going to hold your imperfections against you who is going to hold my imperfections against me those are going to be shown you know if if you're if that's the currency you want to use to get to heaven is how much more perfect i am than somebody else then the that the actual person who is perfect is gonna is gonna you're you're gonna be ashamed in my presence you know, I thought it was interesting um, in verse in chapter 14, verse 13 and 14, where it tells us, Enter ye in the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way which leadeth to destruction, and many there be who go in thereat. And 14, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. So this time around, when I read this, I had a different time than I've had before. I've often felt like narrow is the gate and straight is the way the narrow part almost felt like like it's exclusive restricted. yeah okay. it's it's and the broad you know in the past i've heard it mentioned as broad is because more people the world's heading that way it's just a popular way narrow is going to be the isolated way the lonely way you know? and it may be right but for me what i thought is if i'm on a narrow trail there is no doubt where the trail is. But if I'm in a very broad trail, 
you could get lost inside the trail. It could, it's more ambiguous. And, and I, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't think about it as narrow. It means restricted. Narrow means it's precise. When you're on the trail, you know, you're on the trail, you know? And I, and I like thinking about it that way because, because I think um, our father in heaven hasn't made it his business to make his gospel exclusive. I think we've seen many, many examples of not only him continuously guiding people, even in the Book of Mormon, we hear of three different civilizations that were brought here by the hand of God, and they all perished in different ways, right? Um, and and then how continuously he, he tells us to repent and to give each other other opportunities, because that's what he's doing with us. I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. Well, and then he gives us um, guidance, not only through the scriptures, but through living prophets to be able to find that precise trail and to be able to stay on it and follow it. Um, and then warns us in the, in the next few verses of chapter 14 about false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. The, the, biggest, the biggest, clearest part of this that I can understand is verse 16 and 17. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth up good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. What are the outcomes of what someone is doing? Is it contentious? Is it, or is it unifying? Is it promoting of good, or is it just evading capture? You know, <laughs> like a good prophet, a real prophet, a good source will have good results and good fruit. And a bad prophet and a bad source will just cause chaos. And so when I read that, I'm like, th this applies to not only prophets, but to us. What are our results? What are the results that we are fomenting around us? Are we providing good fruit or are we sowing chaos around us? You know, right. are your actions benefiting others or are your actions just causing people to have to pick up pieces and that takes some some self honesty and some self-respect to look at yourself and say what are my effects and then then you can look outwardly who am i going to follow who are the people that are bringing good fruit and who are those that are bringing bad fruit well i thought of it a little bit different well although you all of that makes sense, Daniel, what you just said. But I thought of like a false prophet is someone who is pretending or gives you advice, but it's not the correct advice. Mm. You know? And what makes it bad advice? It could be timing, it could be selfish interests, and it just could be bad advice, right? <laughs> and the way I thought about it was we have many prophets, we have the blessing of knowing almost all the prophets through the scriptures, right? But who is our prophet? Right now it's President Nelson. And sometimes I think we follow the wrong prophets. And I'm not saying that they're bad ravenous wolf type of prophets, but I think sometimes we cling on to previous revelation at the expense of new revelation. Moses is the pro is a good prophet. Moses led the children out of Israel. 
but he's not our prophet. Right. You know? President Nelson is our prophet. And there will be a time when he won't be a prophet anymore. It'll be another prophet. And the Lord has established this manner to give us continuous revelation to bring the fullness of, of times to, to pass, you know? And and so and, and it's funny because we, we see all of these men working in tandem together. They're they're all testifying of Christ. They all lead us to Christ. But the specifics of what we need to do in our day is President Nelson. You know, and that's where new revelation supersedes old revelation, you know, because as they were told things in the law of Moses, you know, don't eat a what is it, a clothing hoof or cattle to chew the cut or whatever all those weird rules are, they don't apply to us in our day, right? Right. Now we have the word of wisdom. And now we have you know, it, it's I would just I see more frequently, well, there are false prophets in the sense of people who make idols, celebrities and things like that, and or, or YouTube channels or, or weird obscure videos. And they think, oh, this is gonna tell me when the end of times will be here. I'm gonna follow that, you know? And it's like, no, they just want your money to increase their advertisement revenue. And they don't, they just come with a cute story to tell you about some sort of gospel hidden gem that only they know that you need to buy and pay to know yourself yeah. or you can read the scriptures and avoid all that and realize that they're shooting way past the mark and leading you down the trail that will eventually lead to apostasy or <laughs> you can follow our prophet who says be kind to each other minister who says hey you want to worry about the second coming and what what day and what time and how many seconds until it gets here how many of you can add a cubit to your stature by thinking about that no, you can't. So live the way you should now, right? Control the things you can control. Influence the things you can influence. And trust that the Lord will provide the rest. He'll provide the food, the clothing, all of that, right? Um, and really, I think that's why he, in chapter 15, he talks about how he's fulfilled the law of Moses. He's saying this, this new law, this higher law, it doesn't do away with prophecies. But what it does do is it says we're, we're changing the way we view things. We're no longer viewing eye for an eye. We're now viewing it in treat, love one another as I have loved you. If you want to be respected, respect others. If you want mercy, have mercy for others. And then, of course, you know, in, in chapter 16, well, in chapter 15, he tells them, I told the Israelites that I have other sheep and you're those other sheep. And in chapter 16, I have other sheep which are not in this land, neither in the land of Jerusalem, neither in any parts of the land round about whether I have been to minister. He's telling them not only there are not chosen few just out of exclusivity. There's no secret club of people who will know the gospel or should know the gospel. It's everyone. And there's they're everywhere. And I think that that that's very eye-opening because I think a lot of times we feel like when we talk about the, the way is narrow and steep and all of this, that we're, we're kind of saying only a select few will be chosen enough to make it like it's the Lord of the Rings, you know, the fellowship will make it. No, everyone has hey, the right. Leave the Lord of the Ring examples to me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but you know what I mean? Like it's some sort yeah. of secret secret organization that if you know, then you know. It's multi-level marketing. And if you let in three other people, then they can make it too. Oh, we are all his children and all his sheep. And everyone has the responsibility to help those other sheep know what the gospel is. Well, I like how in verse 15, verse 22, 21 and 22, where he tells them, other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, then must I bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. And so he's saying when he told these people in Jerusalem, and they understood me not, for they supposed it had been that it had been the Gentiles, for they understood not the Gentiles would be converted through their preachings. So the people in Jerusalem, when he heard other sheep, they thought it was, oh, you mean the Gentiles, the Samaritans, and, and, and whatever pagans live over there, right? And they themselves didn't understand, no, that's going to be your job <laughs> to go back a couple verses, uh, be the salt of the earth. Uh, yeah. Let your light so shine that you're, they may see your good works and glorify you. That's the missionary work aspect. That's when you understand these principles, then you go share them with your neighbors. And that's my plan for them to receive the gospel. And it's interesting because we, the Lord, just my opinion, it seems like he came to the Israelites and covenant with them because they were a very stiff-necked, proud people. So proud that they were the only ones that would crucify their, their God. And then he challenges them, you bunch of hard-headed folks, when you become converted, go share this with others. And we can all find ourselves inside that story because that's us. We're also hard-headed and we're prideful. And we, but when you feel it, you can say, ah, oh, you know, you you can view others with charity and say, you know, if if you would know that one you can be with your family again and, and these turmoils are only temporary and that good is going to prevail you can have more peace in your life and, and more happiness and prepare yourself to live in a celestial kingdom a kingdom where you, you will be surrounded by people who live these principles of forgiveness of charity of kindness of long suffering of ministering to each other of helping one another and in that kind of environment in that kind of kingdom uh you can have peace and happiness because sometimes here in this kingdom in this celestial glory it doesn't feel very peaceful or happiness sometimes and and it's kind of like how are we preparing ourselves to be on the earth that we want to be in to have the neighbors that we want to be in a place where you can trust people we don't have that completely here but that's what the gospel is it's the preparation for living in our celestial kingdom with our family and friends and all of us together. And we've learned to temper ourselves. We've learned to be honest. We've learned to look out for each other, to to not be hypocrites. What kind of what kind of a place to live would that be? That would be amazing. <laughs> but how do you get there? You have to start with these simple what well they seem simple, but these commandments. Um and, and you have to get yourself in the right place to receive more correction and line upon line. Well, at the at the beginning of chapter 16, when he starts, when he says that about other sheep that are not of this land, neither of the land of Jerusalem. Then in verse 3, he says, but I received a commandment of the Father that I shall go unto them. 
and that they shall hear my voice and shall be numbered among my sheep, that there may be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore, I go to show myself unto them. That one is an easy one to kind of glaze over because then he gets into, you know, the gathering of Israel and all of that. It's a very popular topic, but that verse is pretty darn powerful. He's saying, I'm going to go visit more people that aren't in Jerusalem and aren't here. And pretty directly says they will become one fold and one shepherd. Like everyone will be unified into the same concepts of the gospel. The fulfillment of the law of Moses, whatever it was that they have received, um, will be done. And they will receive my gospel from here on out. There will be one fold and one shepherd. Now, I think part of that is that we have the responsibility to share the gospel. And even if he is no longer on the earth, physically going from place to place, sharing the gospel, those of us who do have the gospel have that responsibility to carry that out for him. Along those lines where you were talking about other sheep, um, the scripture came to me of uh, Moses 1, 32 and 33, 137. In Moses 32, he talks about, and by and by the word of my power have I created them, which is mine only begotten Son, who is full of grace and truth. And worlds without number have I created. And I also created them for mine own purpose. And by the Son I created them, which is my only begotten. And in 37, he says, And the Lord God spake unto Moses, saying, The heavens, they are many, and they cannot be numbered unto men, but they are numbered unto me, for they are mine. And I always felt like that that's such a comforting thought because there are things we don't understand. There are things that we cannot grasp. How are these creations? How did it happen? Was it over millions and billions of years? Was a day a thousand years? Was a moment, you know, how did asteroids and black holes and blah, 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 and all this craziness? But it's like they cannot be numbered unto man, meaning you cannot grasp the vastness of all his creations, but they are numbered unto me, for they are mine. And that's what I think about when all these other sheep, the children of Israel have been scattered. The Gentiles are all over the place. We're all over on this earth, and there's many cultures and people, but they are numbered unto the Lord, and they are his. Because He, his atonement, he came and died for everyone that has lived and will live. He, he didn't come with a specific set of people in mind. He came for all of them because he's a savior of everyone. I don't know. I always find comfort in that last part. And they are numbered unto me. Well, it goes back to the same reason he was having everyone come up and fill the marks in his hands and his side, that every single individual matters and that no one will be left behind. Someone I saw this week, someone posted on somewhere that there's guesstimates that there may have been between 2,000 and 2,500 people there when Christ appeared in the Americas at first. And that if everyone took 10 seconds to feel the marks in his hands and feet inside, that it would take like seven hours. Ten seconds, that's not very much time. <laughs> no. I think moving the line would take 10 seconds. <laughs> So, you know, 
I don't I don't know what that was like. And it's just kind of a, an interesting exercise to view it that way. But it just goes to show that if time is the most important thing that we have, um, the Lord will always have time for us. And we'll always take time to stop and, and teach us as individuals what we need to know to grow. He will always give us individual experiences to to go through good and bad and ugly, right? That are for our benefit, whether we get the opportunity to feel the marks in his hands, feet and sides or whether we get other experiences. It, all of that is for our benefit as individuals and he knows us and that. I think in a world where we're so used to. Exclusivity and membership and privileges and all that to know that God is no respecter of persons and that he has each one of us counted and accounted for. That's incredibly powerful and meaningful that that someone at that level cares about us. It puts a lot of value in us. The Book of Mormon is truly the keystone of our religion and that a man and woman will get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. And if you then go and do what he would have you do, your power to trust him will grow. And in time, you will be overwhelmed with gratitude to find that he has come to trust you. There is no end to the good we can do to the influence we can have with others. Let us not dwell on the critical or the negative. Let us pray for strength. Let us pray for capacity and desire to assist others. Let us radiate the light of the gospel at all times and in all places that the spirit of the Redeemer may radiate from us. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.